Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And, and this, this is The Science of Motherhood. motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of The Science of Motherhood. I'm your co-host, Dr. Renee White. Postpartum doula at Fill Your Cup in Melbourne, Australia, and also Hobart, Tasmania. And for all those longtime listeners, you will know that both myself and my other co-host, Dr. Mika Batucci, who's currently on mat leave, in a previous life, we were scientists, researchers. We've both got a PhD in biochemistry and we continue to throw our heads into the latest research, journal articles, and what we love more than anything is interviewing other academics and researchers in the field. Today, we have a wonderful guest, Dr. Greer Kirschenbaum from Toronto, Canada. Now, I have been a bit of a fangirl of Greer's for quite some time. I've been kind of eating up all of her beautiful content that she puts on Instagram. And the thing I love about Greer is that she has pulled together interests from neuroscience, sleep, and she's also a doula as well. And she's kind of thrown it all together, mixed it up and and just comes up with the most beautifully eloquent ways of describing things that are so physiologically relevant to mothers right now. So Greer obviously obtained her PhD from the Institute of Medical Science and Neuroscience at the University of Toronto in 2011. As I said, she's an infant sleep expert, doula and life coach. And for over 15 years in academic neuroscience laboratory, she studied genetics and the experience of shaping the brain, nervous system and body, which influences lifelong mental and physical health. And we talk about in this interview about that moment in time for her where neuroscience was just that passion for the subject was ignited and then how she transitioned into specialising in infants and infant sleep. And then we really deep dive into the neurology and physiological changes and what the realistic expectations are of your child in those first few months and also those first years. You know, the birth and baby industry has just got some mothers on their knees and coaxes us to buy certain products and do certain things instead of just trusting our gut and our instincts. And Greer and I, um, we chat about this. <laughs> Um, we then kind of 
talk about why infant sleep is so different to adult sleep because I know that this is such a perplexing topic for people. It was for me in the beginning when I had my my newborn and just trying to understand what it is that they need and want and why is it so different to my type of sleep. So Greer um, talks about the physiology around that. And then we kind of switch gears and we talk about mothers. We talk about the process of matrescence. And if you're not familiar with that word, please tune in. This is an amazing conversation with Greer. And then we just do our our usual rapid fire around how to support mothers and resources and all things to help support mums, particularly in those newborn days. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I found it incredibly informative, so valuable. And Greer was just genuinely an amazingly beautiful person to chat to. It didn't even feel like an interview in the end. It just felt like I was chatting to a friend the whole time and we just happened to be massive science nerds. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. I'd love to hear your feedback. Any comments would be greatly appreciated. Please DM me or leave a review. That is how we keep this podcast going and have the accessibility to other mums um, who need and want this information. So enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Greer. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. It's really wonderful to be here. And we've just been talking offline about how beautiful the weather is in Toronto. I'm here in Tassie. I feel like it's all happening and everyone will probably see later in the visuals. It looks like Greer and I are like matching with our like grey sweaters on <laughs> this morning. <laughs> it's cold sure. and wet here in Tassie and it's, and it's obviously snowing in Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. I have been oh, a big so fan happy. of your work for quite some time and I'm like one of those voyeuristic people that I'm like, watching, watching, then I'm like, okay, I'm brave. I'm brave. I'm going to ask her on the podcast. (laughs) It's happening. And I love the fact that obviously you're a researcher, you're a neuroscientist. And the thing that caught my eye first was the fact that you were like, I'm the first doula who is a neuroscientist. And I kind of feel like I said to Mika, I was like, do you think we could say that we're the first biochemists that are doulas? <laughs> we were like doing some research and we we're like, maybe we are. <laughs> you others, neuroscientist doulas that I've, I've met over the past few years. So now I'm like, I don't know if I should say that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you're the first that you knew of. You're the first that, that you knew of. That exactly. I think, I think you can the- keep that. Just keep that one. I think you're right. Um, So you're not just a neuroscientist and a doula. You're also an infant sleep expert and a life coach as well. That is just such an amazing combination of skill sets and you provide such wonderful content as well, which I think, and I see, I read the comments. I'm a comment reader, just the value in it. Like I can see other people are just like, yeah. oh my God, that totally makes sense. And I love the, obviously the science element because I'm a massive nerdo. I wanted to go right back to the beginning because I sure. love talking to scientists, researchers, academics about that moment, that moment in time where 
you had that connection with neuroscience and and mm-hmm. how it ignited your passion because I still remember that moment in my life where I was sitting in a lecture theatre at uni, second year uni, biochemistry, and I saw this video of a crystal structure of an enzyme chopping another protein in half and I like I still have tingles just thinking about it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, that is so cool. And I was like, this is it. That's it. I found my I found my place in life. And it turned out yeah. that the lecturer who, like, was taking the class at that point in time, he turned out to be my PhD lecturer because I just had such an affinity for that particular topic of biochemistry. So do you have a moment in time where you were like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is it? <laughs> Question. I mean, as you were speaking, I was trying to remember. I mean, I actually, I definitely had that moment in biochemistry yeah. because yeah. there's so how many cool was it? <laughs> beautiful, unbelievable, you know, observations of the natural world. And, and I remember in biochemistry, it was like, what? Yes. <laughs> how yeah. can we know that so much detail about a molecule or a transporter or yeah, yeah. Incre- incredible. I think that biggest influence on me becoming a researcher was I mean there was a few but like the the thing that really made me fall in love was I had an opportunity to do like a seminar course Mm -hmm. I think in my third year of university my undergraduate degree with a professor in learning and memory and we just did like a deep dive into like the cellular you know biology of of learning and memory because all the papers were like this molecule is involved and this molecule is involved. And we did this project to take all of the papers mm-hmm. and create like a giant molecular mechanism. Oh, and actually, <laughs> that was just so incredible. And, and I think it was also the learning environment yeah. that this professor it was Richard Brown at Dalhousie university. He's a legend as a professor yeah. and yeah. a researcher. And he just made it, magical he made it come alive he believed in us he you know really really fostered that helped us learn how to speak and communicate everything so that was a really magical thing and then eventually you know he actually introduced me to my PhD supervisor Mm -hmm. and he was like bring the model with you like show people what we've done and that was kind of cool too so I love that and it is it's the people that bring the magic because you know, I, I, I was, I really thought I was going to go down the pathway of genetics. Cause I was like, I love genetics. It's amazing. Yeah. And the people, you know, were just so boring, <laughs> you know, there's no other word for it. And I was just like, I thought this was going to be fun. I thought this was going to be my dream like subject. And I ended up picking up biochemistry just to fill in the gap. I was like, oh God, okay, I've got to do one more subject. What am I going to do? Right. Yeah, biochemistry, whatever. Like I'll just turn up. I'll just get a pass. You know, it's fine. Yeah. But it is. It's the people that bring the magic and I love that. Okay. So what was it along the path that kind of got you to narrow in on the niche of infants and I guess mm-hmm. the neuroscience and, and sleep about about infants yeah for sure I think I was really I mean I was always interested in early life experience I actually did a high school project on it I had to do a giant extended essay 
And I did it about how vision develops. Wow. Um, so that's like the most concrete example of how experience at a certain point in life is critical for building a certain part of the brain, right? The visual system. So that was my first kind of product. And I think my mom influenced me to that as well, because she was sort of interested in that too. What and did then, your mom do? If you don't she's a therapist. Yeah, okay. She's a, yeah. Yeah. So that was really interesting. And she, and also me and my brother were both really highly sensitive babies and children. And so she did a lot of nurturing work as well. So I think that all tied into it too. It was not really validated. You know, it wasn't validated. It wasn't supported. You know, she went through the like, oh, you're creating it because you're responding to them. And, you know, all stuff. she was like teased for like breastfeeding us for a long time and not sleep training us and all that kind of stuff. So, and we were both really highly sensitive. So I think that that was like the seed of it all. But yeah, that I was sort of like led through an interest of what is learning and memory and like that kind of similar theme of like in those early years, what experiences are changing the brain in a long-term way. So I really focused on that in my undergraduate degree. I did like every course and seminar on development. So I learned how like, yeah, vision, into like some some things about cognition yeah all the systems auditory I did like a huge paper on how the auditory system is shaped by experience and I kind of at that point was like wow this stuff is really powerful maybe we could like create wonderful sensory experiences for babies to enrich their brains but it wasn't until my PhD and then my postdoc where I narrowed it even more on how the stress system develops and how the emotional systems develop and how those are also in these like very sensitive periods of development in the first three years of life. Most of my research was in animal models that, you know, we try to, to translate to, to humans as much as possible. So yeah. So then at the end of my PhD or the end of my postdoc at Columbia, I was still had that idea of like, I really want to bring this research to babies to like, it's powerful. It can change people's lives. And then yeah, that was like a moment for me where I was like, it's not a pill. Like, you know, if this was a pill, like it would be being sold everywhere, right? Like this early nurturing, wiring the brain experience, but the pharmaceutical companies not, can't make it because it's, <laughs> it's much more than that. So I'm like, it's going to need a science communicator to, you know, to do it. So that my goal was like, I'm going to write a book and just like go out into the world in any way I can to bring this information out and yeah and so that's been like my life for the past six or seven years or so oh yeah. that's so good I love the fact that you're like it's not a pill you cannot like it's not a silver bullet I had this conversation with a client the other day around sleep and I have these conversations with a lot of new mothers when we're in home with them and the conversation is typically oh, you know, I can't get them to sleep. Can you help me? You know, please give me some advice and, and things like that. And I'm like, explain to me what's going on. And it's typically, mm -hmm. well, you know, they only want to sleep on me or right near me and I can't get anything done around the house and all the rest of it. Yeah. And my instant reaction is, I'm really sorry, but I don't have a silver bullet for you. Yeah. This is actually 
physiologically normal. And if I tell you otherwise, then we're actually going against the grain. You know, we're going against that nurture and nature and that mother baby dyad that and the bond that is supposed to be occurring. Like I can sit there and go, <laughs> you know, and lie to you and say, make sure the room is dark and you can pat them. And like that's just not mm-hmm. our thing, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. the the conversation needs to be more around why is this physiologically normal? And yeah. also, and we'll get to the mother side of things, what is it? that you think that you're missing out on or that you feel like you need to do other than yes have your baby sleep on top of you during the day and have that connection so yeah. i'm so glad that you raised that <laughs> first and foremost so i'm going to yeah. I, I i want you to walk us through those physiological changes and and the neurology and Particularly, I, I find the first four months of life are quite challenging for new mothers, not to yeah. say like, you know, the next four years are not challenging. But I think there's that real, I think, and I'm not the neuroscientist, but my understanding is that there's a lot happening in that first four months. Can you walk us through mm-hmm. what is actually going on and and also kind of bring that context to the listeners or who are mothers and go, oh, okay, yeah, actually, yeah, that's that, that's happening. That's normal. Yeah, for sure. There's, like you said, there's so much happening. And I think the way to think of it is you're, it's the birth of a mother as well, right? So it's the birth of a baby and the birth of a mother and father or partner and family, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's so many changes happening. And so let's start with the parent, I guess, or the baby. What do you think? Uh, let's go with the baby because we'll, we'll baby. switch gears okay. to the parent later. Okay. So I'll start with the baby. So yeah, so the baby's transitioning out of the womb and the baby's expecting a lot of things when they're born, right? So they're expecting, you know, all the senses to be met in a very similar way as when they were developing in the womb. So they come out born looking for the scent of the parent. They're listening for the voices of the voices that they heard mm-hmm. while they were growing inside touch movement vestibular stimulation so like they're the fluid in their eardrums to be moving they're very very sensory oriented and it's also human sensory oriented right so like exactly what you're talking about like babies are happiest when they're sleeping on the chest of somebody of their mother or someone else because then they can get all those senses right there's mm-hmm. there's the chest moving and breathing there's the sound of a heartbeat there's the smell of the parent there they can see them, right? Like babies can also see faces really well when they're born more than anything else and detect faces and orient to them. They can, yeah, mimic facial expressions, right? Like, so, so I think reminding parents that the baby brain is really unique and what it is looking for Mm -hmm. is really helpful. And also that when we, you know, are able to give that to babies most of the time, not only are they the happiest, right? Because we, we know that from the experience, mm-hmm. but it's also like a really important beneficial thing to do, right? It's inside, outside the, of the body. That's how the baby looks. I described, but inside the baby's brain, it's creating what I call like a nurture bath, right? Like you can imagine their brain floating in a bath. And when they receive all these sensory signals, their brain's releasing oxytocin. It's releasing dopamine. It's releasing opiates, endorphins, a serotonin, norepinephrine, right? This very 
particular mix of neurotransmitters, hormones, neuropeptides, it's probably hundreds and even thousands that we don't even know about yet, they're being released. And when that happens, it's influencing the baby's stress system and all of their brain systems that will eventually underlie their mental and physical health. It shapes them to all grow to be as resilient as possible and, yeah, as regulated as possible later on. So, yeah, I always tell parents that mindset shift is everything in those Mm -hmm. first months and years. Like, we're used to, like, producing and creating. And it's like, do something. Do something I can see, right? Like, what did you do today? Oh, great. The laundry's done. So, like, you've done something today, right? Mm -hmm. But really, what you're doing is invisible. It's invisible work. And it is work because it's like, you know, you're sitting there with a baby sleeping on you and you're feeding the baby and soothing them over and over again. We've learned that that's called nothing, right? Like that's like, oh, I did nothing. Like Mm -hmm. I did. And it's absolutely false, right? Like you've actually done very strenuous work, even if you're sitting on a couch doing that work. It's mental work and it's physical work. And it is producing something. It's just invisible. It's building the baby's amygdala, hippocampus, hypothalamus, prefrontal cortex, and beyond, right? Like all their neurotransmitter systems. It's actually incredible work. Babies form a million brain connections per second in the first three years of life. It's just, right? Unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. Imagine if you could see that. Imagine if, like... I, I, I don't know. I'm going like far, like, you know, crazy, weird science tech. But imagine if you had like, you know how they've got those weird like thermometer things that you can attach to their feet and yeah. monitor that. Imagine if you had a device <laughs> that you could connect to a baby's back of their head, let's say, put a headband on them. I don't know. Yeah. And imagine if you could see the work that a mother or a caregiver is actually instilling on the brain development, all of these nurture bath kind of chemicals and combinations and neurons and everything that are forming. And and imagine if you could see that because I think that would change the game like on, wow, look what I have done today. Yes, that it yes. would just be like a complete game changer. Maybe I should maybe I should investigate that. <laughs> yeah. Even just something that's like shows you how many million connections your baby Exactly. How many connections are there in a day, right? In twenty four hours. Like that's how many million like probably billion or even trillion connections yeah. are made in a day, right? It's really, really huge. So that would be cool. Really cool. That would and, be amazing. And- we want the parents to be like, to really make that mindset shift from like, I'm not doing anything to be like, yeah. I'm doing amazing, yeah. amazing things. I did and amazing- I'm doing everything I should be doing. And I hate doing the shoulds and should nots, but I'm doing everything I should be doing because bonding with your baby and nurturing them and loving them and having that oxytocin like just explosion is everything that they should be doing. And that is enough in itself completely and and we can get there parent mothers and parents can get there but like it's almost like we have to release that like give them permission to and release them oh yeah to do it because we've just been so programmed there's so much unlearning that has to be done right like I would be with my baby I was I have a three year and a half year old I was like 
actively doing that work all mm-hmm. the time, right? Like mm-hmm. this, like I'm doing something, I'm doing something, you know, because, you know, your monkey mind is like, oh, do an Instagram post, uh, right? You know, go do some writing, go answer an email, go clean the kitchen, you know, and then you're yeah. just like, no, I'm doing something. I'm busy right now. I'm doing something important right now. I need to come back to that. It's a process. I love that self-talk. I I didn't have a great postpartum and I didn't know what I know now. And there was that constant guilt of like, oh God, that was she needs to be done. And oh yes, the kitchen needs to be cleaned up. And oh, I've got to do this and that. And it, because my brain was wired to, if I can't see the physical jobs being done, then you are not worth much. You know, like, because I'd always been, I'd always been kind of praised and, and, you know, oh, that's the girl that like can get everything done all by herself. (laughs) Yeah. And like, then you become a mom and you're like, oh shit, I can't do all that by myself. (laughs) It's like a rude awakening. Yes. And 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 it's the people around you to know that what you're doing is a lot and is enough. Yeah. 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 And I had a, like, my husband is so supportive and he would, he would, like, he was so hellbent. He was like, before we even had my daughter, he was like, we need to get a cleaner. And I was like, hell no. Wow. (laughs) He was like, no, I, I, yeah, he's like, I I think we need to, he, like, he had a list. He was like, I think we need to engage a lactation consultant, get a cleaner. And I also think we need to start because um, we didn't have family close by. He's like, I think we need to uh, like establish a connection with like a nanny or someone that so you can have a break. And yeah. I was so against all of it because yeah. I had always been rewarded for doing everything myself. And I was like, I don't need anyone's help. Like, that's just crazy. <laughs> and then I completely broke. <laughs> and then, you know, 10 months in, I was like, okay, I, I think I need help now. And he's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. let's do it. Let's roll yeah. out. Let's roll out the village, which is Completely. what it needs to Looking be. back to my experience, I have the similar thing I did. It was like, do it all. And then when I started to go back to work around eight months, then I had someone, a, a caregiver come in for my son, but I still didn't get a break because mm. I was working as a mom. And then when our caregiver came over then I just go straight on my computer and just like work 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 and I was like I did not build in any time Mm. you know for for me and I think that's it you need the village to have time for you you do yeah Yeah, absolutely absolutely. do yeah Yeah. hard thing to get into my and because I I couldn't get it into my own head now I'm like really passionate about like repeating it to people so it's like really like yeah you you, it's so much better for you and your baby and your family and babies are nurtured by different people. And mm-hmm. I saw that when I had my caregivers over, like, I was like, they're doing amazing things with my baby that I don't do. Yeah. That's incredible. Yes. That's, yes. You know, enriching. It's so true because, so my husband's an only child and, and I think he had, <sighs> He had seen it. He kept saying to me, because I was so hell-bent. I was like, oh, my God, I don't want other people in my house because, you know, you get that mama bear type, you know, yeah. instinctual, nut, nah, don't want it. And he, and he was like, no, 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 she needs to be around, like, other people other than our 
direct family and friends because they need to be able to bring a different flavor to her life, a different experience. And I, like I was, it took me a while and I had to sit with it and I was just like, okay, no, yeah, okay, I get that. I get that now. And, you know, our nanny always kind of, you know, she did what we wanted her to do it was a very similar parenting style and things like that but she would throw in like a few little curveballs here and there and initially I was like oh my god oh my god hold on a minute that's not how we do it and my husband was like no just stand back and watch because she needs to have that different experience and it just I mean she's only four and a half now but I feel like just those moments with a different person who did it just that little bit different has shaped her already into you know someone who's a bit more resilient and oh you know it's it's not just what mummy and daddy say oh I need to listen to someone else as well so yeah it's it's been I I totally agree caregivers are a great kind of different flavor for for kids yeah and it's again like something we have to help parents understand, right? Because yep. a lot of parents are like you and me. They're like, we want to, I want to do it myself. I don't need anyone. <laughs> My way's the right way. <laughs> right? Or they'll feel guilty when they go back to work about mm. having a nanny or going to daycare. And it's like, oh, I wish I could be doing it all. And it's like, we really weren't, we really always had villages. There was allo, always allo parenting. Yes. And there's so many people who really are really good. Yeah. Being with little ones. Yeah, hundred percent, and yeah. and they do need that that different experience to make them a, a, just a more fuller kind of individual. I I think. Yeah. So talking about like supporting children, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like common myths or societal norms, mm-hmm. and I think we we're kind of touching on on those a little bit already, and and how they're dampening that support for children and all this neurodevelopment because I was listening to a podcast a while back now and someone had said, you know, the only reason why, what was it? Like the, the baby industry is worth like X billion dollars. Yes. And the only way that they were able to do that was actually to separate a mother or a caregiver from the baby. That's the only way. And if you think about it, it's like prams, they're not with the baby. Bassinets, they're not with the baby. And and it was actually, it was actually a father who was talking about it. And he was like, we don't have a pram. Mm -hmm. We baby wear the entire time. We don't have a cot. We don't have a bassinet. We co-sleep. Like there's none of that. So can you talk about some common myths and societal norms that are kind of dampening that support of our children and, and maybe that ideal kind of your nurture bath? Yeah. What are things that are kind of going against that? It's that we thing. I just thought of, I had like a little spark in my mind when you were saying that. Not only are those products created to sort of mimic as much as possible some of the things that a parent would give a baby, like the movement or the, you know, mm-hmm. the containment or whatever of a swaddle or, you know, all these things. But the myths that are out there are all supporting how to get your baby to be happy in these things. Yes. <laughs> right. So it's like we created them 
and we're loading on all these expectations on you as a parent that like your baby better like them. Yeah. And if they don't, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Something wrong with you, (laughs) something wrong with your baby, or you're not working hard enough to train them or to do things. So yeah, that, that I completely agree with that. I think I view all of the baby gadgets as tools. Mm -hmm. None of them are for all babies. And that's Mm -hmm. what it's sold as, right? Like you have to have a swaddle, you have to have a pram, you have to have a bassinet, you have to have now a snoo is the new yeah. thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, my cl- with my doula clients, I'm like, you don't, I'm like, start with nothing. Yeah. And add in as needed. Because, mm-hmm. you know, my initial stance on all of it was like, forget it all. But then I went back to my mom and she was like, no. She's like, you, me and my brother would sleep 20 minute stretches. Going back and looking at us, we both also had like really fast births and allergies. So we had like that cluster of probably like, uh-huh. needing body work, needing tongue tie, yeah, you know, assessments, digestive stuff and allergies. Right. We had like clusters of things that like, yeah, I think if she had more support back then it would have been different, mm-hmm. but she was like, no, if I had access to that, to a snoo, then I would have been able to have maybe an hour or two of sleep every 24 hours. Solid. Yeah. Right. So I was like, yeah. okay, that changed my view as well. I'm like, so they're tools, right. They're like, yeah, let's see what kind of baby, you know, we have, and then use add in tools as needed from, you know, from the baby industry to like help the parents be able to, you know, be their best, you know, whatever that, whatever that thing sort of means. So, so yeah, the myths that these all rely on are like, baby should be able to be put down. They should be able to sleep by themselves in their own room, you know, yeah. pretty quickly. They should be sleeping long stretches of sleep. They, you know, you're spoiling that, you know, the spo- I, I still don't believe all these things are out there, but I know they are like, every oh, time I like- <laughs> they are definitely out there I because I have had this exact conversation with a client who unfortunately was on the receiving end of pretty, like, as you were saying, I was like, tick, tick, mm. tick. Uh, a nurse had said that to her seven day old baby should be sleeping by itself should be like in another room <laughs> in another room without its mother That's really dangerous advice <laughs> i know it should be really dangerous. you should be able to pop them down they should be able to self-settle sleep by themselves and i was just like the combination of like shock and rage And all of it, I was just like, oh, Renee. And the fact that she was a client, not a friend, oh, oh boy, did I have to try and be super professional. I (laughs) I was like, if that was a friend, I would have just been like, are you? (laughs) Profanity, profanity, profanity. We'll never get that on um, iTunes or Spotify if I say the things that were in your head. (laughs) But, Greer, it is still out there. I just don't get it. It's and so, it's dangerous for the baby and dangerous for the mother because the spiral of guilt yes. and shame that she then went down, I was like, please don't. Like, yeah. like just pretend. Like, if you can pretend that that never happened, we will be good because that is the most outdated advice I have ever heard. And yeah. it's not true. And it's the most complicated and really dangerous when it comes from nurses, doctors, not often other yeah. professionals, mostly from nurses and doctors, the stuff is coming from, and they'll say these 
wildly inappropriate things like, oh, your baby shouldn't be hungry anymore at night. Like, oh, yeah. are you controlling the leptin and ghrelin levels inside? <laughs> Can you imagine oh, if you said that to them? My baby. <laughs> Like, oh, do you monitor that and like confirm that they're not hungry or thirsty when they, that is exactly what they're asking for. Um, my doctor told me that and I was just like, mm-hmm, okay. So it's really hard, right? Because we want to trust our doctors and they need to, you know, work in within their scope. Like they, yeah. most doctors and nurses do not have up-to-date training on anything related to feeding or anything related to sleep. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard to navigate that. Super, yeah. super hard. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I so. just, I wanted to call that nurse and just say, I think you need to check your facts and maybe go maybe go and get some additional training because you're not being very helpful right now. Yeah. And if you saw the damage that you're doing to this mother, I think you would second guess what yeah. the advice is that you're kind of divvying out to to mums on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. I've had so many clients, similar experiences. They're like, our, you know, our baby's just screaming when we put them down and the doctor just said, do it, keep doing it every day, put them in a bassinet alone and close the door, you know, for 10 minutes up, you know, go, slowly going up to 60 minutes. I'm like, what? And what? Put your noise cancelling headphones on and like hope for the best. Yeah. Oh, yeah. again, so, if you had that little device on your baby and you could see what's going on in their beautiful little brains when that happens, yes. no one would be doing that. No, no, absolutely not. And it's just, it's practice-based care. Like it's just, oh, some everyone's been doing that forever. So that's mm. the advice. It's not evidence-based whatsoever. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so yes, all of those myths are just, Rip them up, throw them away. That <laughs> is absolutely not true. The truth is babies both benefit and parents also benefit from listening to the baby's cues, right? I say like the survival brain and the brainstem is the most developed part of a baby when they're born, uh-huh. which, you know, takes care of all of their survival things, breathing, feeding, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then also communicating to our caregivers. So they cry to be close. They interact with us. They communicate, right? They tell us when they're hungry, tired, thirsty, cold, uncomfortable. And when we respond to that survival brain, then we're building their emotional brain, which is sort of the next part of the brain to develop. We're building that to be really, really resilient. So yeah, listening to their cues, keeping them close. I mean, even if a baby signals to always be close and always wanting to be touching a parent, I actually tell parents like, you know, your baby, like, that's a good thing. Cause that means you're going to actually be holding your baby a lot. Mm-hmm. The babies who aren't signaling, who actually maybe have different nerve, you know, more relaxed nervous systems when they're born, they're not signaling as much. Maybe they can be put down a lot more. I'm like th- those babies also really benefit from being held all the time. Right. So, mm. I mean, obviously they need to explore when they want to explore as well, but I'm talking about like the very, like the in arms phase, right? Like the beginning time. Yeah. The more we can keep babies close, sleep, daytime, interactions, all this kind of stuff, the more their brain's in that nurture bath and the more, you know, biomass is built, right? Like we're actually changing the receptors in their brain, the connections in their brain. It's very, very profound what you, what you build. And those are really Yeah. Again, that invisible work of like, you have no idea the effort that's going into just that bonding and 
physical kind of touch with your baby. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easier. You don't have to be working against biology, right? Like- exactly. <laughs> I'd just be like, well, I did a lot of just sitting and watching Netflix, to be honest yeah. with you. I caught up in so many shows. I was like, and we're just going to relax for the day. I've got my trolley of snacks and my beverages. And, yeah, yeah we're just going to chill here for the day. Yeah. yeah 100%. Yeah. Completely. And for pe- and some people, that's great. I did the exact same thing. But some people are, are want to do, do more, right, want to be on their feet yeah. more. And then yeah. you got baby wearing, right? Like then, you know, if you're really feeling like you – really need to do the dishes you really need to do the laundry and you know all the things or go for walks then yeah then you've got baby wearing is another way to keep mm. baby clothes while you're doing all those things yeah I didn't do that enough I feel like oh, we're one and done but I think if I had another child I would definitely kind of take that on a bit more because mm-hmm. it would have made yeah it would have made life a bit easier but having said that though like kind of going full circle you don't know what kind of baby you're going to have. And I <laughs> I was talking to a friend the other day and she's she's a nurse. She'd already had two children. And because I'm like this, I love a list. I'm an Excel spreadsheet girl. I'm a type mm-hmm. A personality. Long-time listeners <laughs> will know that. And <laughs> I, I recall making the baby list right. as you do. There's no mum list because I just yeah. didn't even think about that. And I said to her, I'm going to give you a call and I want to wo- work through this list with you and I need your, like, comments and opinions and, like, all the things that I need to buy. Yeah. And she completely blew my mind because I was like, okay, so do I need, like, an ergo, you know, baby thing? And she was like, no. And I was like, what about a bouncer? And she was like, well, I don't know. And I was like, what do you mean you don't know? And I was like, you've got, you've had two kids. You're a nurse. <laughs> what do you mean? And she's like, well, Renee, you don't know because you don't know, like, what type of baby you're going to have. She may yeah. arrive and be like, I hate all of that. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, yeah, and then you've gone and wasted all your money because that stuff ain't cheap. And I was like, hold on a minute. All babies don't need or want all of this? And she was like, nah, nah. Yeah. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I can't tell you what she's going to like. And I was just like, oh, my God. And that was the first moment in time. <laughs> Being pregnant and also like that forecasting of like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to control this situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it blew ah. my mind. Yeah, because that stuff helped, like that stuff gives people that illusion too, right? Yes, because you are fed that, oh, your baby will be happy in this and your baby will love this and your baby will be so calm and content and everything and you'll be able to get stuff done and, like, all that kind of jazz. And then you go, oh, okay, yeah, no, that's not necessarily going to happen. So that completely blew my mind. For sure. I've seen so many homes where people have, like, a swing and then the swing that goes up and down and (laughs) six different baby holder (laughs) things and – I mean, I think one thing's for sure that a baby will will be soothed and relaxed if they're in a carrier on a person or being held by a person, right? Because yeah. that's what all of the those gadgets are mimicking. And it's almost like a matter of like, are they gonna do the job for uh-huh. your baby or not? Right. Yeah. 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 
Okay, I want to talk about the difference between infant sleep and adult sleep mm-hmm. and why they are different because I think we go back to that like myth and societal norms of like, oh, your baby should be sleeping through the night. And it's like, okay, but what does sleeping through the night actually mean? You know, yeah. for an infant, is that four hours? Is that eight hours? What mm-hmm. and and I think like the question around and I don't know whether this is true, and I'd love to pick your brain about this, but how babies can sleep really long stretches during the day. And then when it comes to night, it's like party time. Uh, what is going on there in their little brains? What's happening? Is there a switch? Obviously there is at one point because we yeah. all turn into sleeping at night. Can you walk us through that? I'd love to know the details. Yeah, definitely. So there's different sleep architecture for mm-hmm. infants. So like we can measure their brain waves like as it develops, right? And so there's distinct architecture in the first three to four months. Mm-hmm. And that's the time when there's sleep is, you know, distributed across 24 hours for most babies, right? Like some of them will ease into it after two months. Some will take the full three or four months. And so the things that are not developed are circadian rhythms, which tell us, which is day and night. And that's when often when babies will have, you know, lots of waking and lots of, uh, you know, alertness in the middle of the night. Not all babies do. Um, It completely depends. But there's a great graphic, I put it in my course, of a dad charted his baby's sleep-wake patterns across 24 hours for the first six months. Mm -hmm. And you can see in those first three, four months, it's like scattered across the 24 hours of of light-wake. And melatonin is also developing, right? So what melatonin is another signal that puts us in a sleep state. So at the four-month mark, this is when people notice there's like a big change for most Mm -hmm. babies, right? Yeah. Called a regression, some people call it a progression. I just call it the sleep change, right? Yeah. Dramatic sleep. And that kind of marks a, a, a big change in sleep architecture. It changes. So in the early months, it's, you know, I won't go into the details, but it changes. And then, so then babies do start to have a difference, a clearer difference between day and night mm-hmm. at that at that time, right? And they also start to release their own melatonin. Mm-hmm. In the first part, I should also say, that's also related. They sleep almost in relation to feeding needs. So like when babies are really little, they need nutrition. They need to be fed about every two hours, right? Like we don't want babies that age sleeping longer than four hours because they need to be eating and drinking. Uh So yeah, some sleep training protocols will start at like two weeks, nine weeks, 12 weeks. This is all really dangerous to be restricting food and water from babies during during that time I mean I think it is pretty well known that you know sleep training doesn't generally start until six months because there's also studies showing it doesn't even change anything before six months Mm -hmm. but yeah that's that's important for babies from three up to three or four months to be waking up very often right so we don't expect a stretch of sleep longer than four hours generally it's about two hours because they're they're eating so yeah so we have that dramatic change circadian rhythms come online melatonin comes online the babies are still waking, right? So their sleep architecture is really different in that they have way more REM sleep than we do as adults mm-hmm. and they have shorter sleep cycles. Mm-hmm. So REM sleep is a very light sleep where we can be awakened really easily. And babies, it's important for babies to have this because that's where they consolidate their memories and their learning. 
it's really, really important. And they're learning a lot yep. <laughs> for a second. So it's a lot to sort through. But then they also are in that lighter sleep so they can assess what they're needing, right? Beyond mm. like eating, drinking, comfort, temperature, like being close to an adult, being close to a mature brain is a need for babies. So they will wake up and they want to know they're safe, right? They don't know that we have locks on our doors. They, you know, they wake up, they're very underdeveloped. They don't have that cognitive knowledge. They're like, where's my safety person? And they need that, right? So some babies will need just to know that, right? Like I'm here and like hand on their back. Some will need a feed, some will need a cuddle, but they do need, you know, to feel safe, to fall asleep, just as we all do as adults, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's another change that happens around six to eight months where babies start to go into like a very long initial period of sleep in the beginning of the night. So they have a really long, deep sleep mm-hmm. in the first chunk of the night, which is very different to adult sleep as well. And so... <laughs> You know, you could do with it what you want. I generally encourage parents to also sleep during that first chunk too, so that they can, you know, have longer stretches of sleep as well. But then after that long chunk, then wakings can happen again too, right? So, so I think, I think that is, those are interesting points to notice. And it's also just good to know for parents that, you know, anywhere between zero to three or four wake-ups for babies all the way up to three years old, because we define infancy as up to three years old, is normal and expected and not a problem it becomes a problem if we put barriers there if we say like babies have to sleep alone or you know it's a way easier for parents and babies to have you know babies in the same room if not the same bed right depending on the safety for a particular family Mm -hmm. and not just that it's also really beneficial because then that babies think of their brain is in that nurture bath for yes. 60% longer of their life in those first three years. It's a huge opportunity to have those signals going in. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you for explaining that to me. And I, yeah. I, I love the fact that it's all around, like these are the things that they actually need. Like they need to be close to you. And I kind of, I like to always think about like what the evolutionary needs are. Like, you know, back when we were in caves and things like that, they needed to, like they're vulnerable. Like they can't get up and run if like there's a predator or something like that. So they kind of have to always be in that light sleep mode and to be safe. And it's so true. They don't know (laughs) that we've got locks on the doors. They don't know that they're going to you know, be kind of safe in that environment. So yeah, thank you for for raising yeah, the, that. The, the babies in their own room and sleep training and all this kind of stuff that is not beneficial to the brain is only about 100 years old. It's like 0.05% or maybe even 0.005% of human history. It's like 100 over 200,000 years of human development. We've been doing this, right? So it's, yeah. in my opinion, a mistake that we need to correct. Yeah. Ugh. All right, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about the mamas. Yeah. So we've talked about, obviously, the amazing physiology and all, (laughs) like, these brain connections that are happening for infants. Yeah. But I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about that brain remodelling and the process of matrescence that 
that mothers go through. And for all those playing at home, if you've never heard of the word matrescence, please look it up. So matrescence is, I was explaining this to a client the other day because she was being quite apologetic around feeling emotional and overwhelmed and tired. And I just said to her, you know that this is all normal and you do you know why this is happening? And, you know, she was very teary and, mm-hmm. again, very apologetic for things that are normal. And I just said to her, you know, remember when you were a teenager and remember you were like very hormonal and like you were quite foggy and you were like, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? And you probably had some very combative conversations with your parents and your friends and you are very emotional. I said, you know, your brain was undergoing that remodeling. And the only other time that that occurs in a woman's life is when she becomes pregnant and has a baby. And so <laughs> there happens another kind of brain remodeling and the process is now being coined matrescence instead of adolescence. So I was wondering if you could cuz you are the expert. You're the neuroscientist. So <laughs> are you able to talk to us about what those physiological changes are in uh, in a yeah. woman's brain and and why if you know can you pinpoint a few things oh you know this is why you're feeling tired or this is why like if i i think i did a post the other day about baby brain and i call it leveling up <laughs> because i'm just like yeah. i have had i've been on the back end of oh she's just got baby brain you know yeah. in the workplace and i'm just yeah. like if I had a dagger right now, I'm like, I, <laughs> I'm leveling up, boy. <laughs> you know, I'm becoming smarter, Ew. not dumber, as you people keep saying to me. Yeah. So, can you walk yeah. us through what's what's happening in a mama's brain when when we become pregnant and have a baby? Yeah. So, oh my gosh, there's so much to say. So the, so I like to talk about it. So very similar to what you did is like it's a transfer major transformation. If you think about a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, there's a chrysalis state where you turn into a sack of goo. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's not, you don't just like sprout out wings and just go for a fly, go flying around. Oh, great. Um, This is so good. I love this. Right. There's this very, very significant time of transformation that might feel like that. Like, yeah. Like you're but yes. Yeah, so, so infancy from zero to three years, adolescence and becoming a parent are the three biggest times of neuroplasticity that we know of. Mm-hmm. And so when we are nurturing as a parent, so, so mothers and people who birth babies will start this transformation in pregnancy mm-hmm. and then parents by adoption or surrogacy or any other way, they'll, their brains also transform, but it will take you know, three or four months of a lot of nurturing care, you know, to start having the changes too. Mm-hmm. And the, the changes are similar, but different in men and women. So Ruth Feldman kind of has done a lot um, of this work. So, so yeah, so it's, it's huge, a huge time for transformation, right? Our brains are really, really, really neuroplastic. And I see it also as an opportunity, right? And I also see it through the lens of culture, where we praise certain abilities and either ignore or shame others, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we become parents, 
our emotional centers are deeply, deeply affected, right? So we've, we actually see certain parts of the brain involved in empathy, you know, understanding other people's facial cues, emotional expression in their face, their body language, um, and tuning into their emotional states, like states of empathy, those get smaller. Mm-hmm. And the reason they get smaller is because they get more efficient, right? And so we're really, really tuned in. When we're interacting with our babies a lot, holding them, you know, face-to-face contact, eye-to-eye contact, our brains release oxytocin. And that can also relieve our heightened amygdala. So our amygdala gets gets heightened. So our fear center gets heightened when we, we become parents because we need to be looking for threats for our baby, mm-hmm. right? And so that's a really common experience people have, right? They're mm-hmm they're become afraid of things, right? Like what if my baby falls off that ledge? What if, you know, some, our thoughts can get really exaggerated, right? Of like Mm -hmm. uh, worries and concerns about our baby. And that's part of how we survive and protect our babies. And that anxiety is relieved by our baby's presence. And so a lot of times if a parent is feeling postpartum anxiety or depression or other, you know, even just any sort of mood change, People are like, get the baby away, take over the baby, let's get them better. And that's not the answer. The mm-hmm. answer is let's facilitate this parent, you know, obviously help their mental health and address it, but let's have the baby there, either if that parent's able to have the baby alone or with support, right? Because yeah. actually the scent of the baby, the touch of the baby, all those things are helping that parent, unless like their wish is to have time on their own, of course, like sure. that's another thing. But I know I've worked with a lot of people where that's that that's the way it's gone. So yeah, so that's a so baby has a calming presence on on the maternal brain, paternal brain, through the amygdala. It in, the baby's increased dopamine, um, which mm-hmm. is a rewarding hormone, and so our dopamine centers change, and so we become with lots of contact become addicted to our babies in a lot of ways. (laughs) That's why we smell them all the time because they just smell so delicious and kiss them. And I think that also comes into uh, that feeling of like, you know, some people go, oh, I could just eat them up. Yes, completely. That comes from that. Is that right? I don't know if it comes from, I mean, it must come from dopamine. It's called like cute aggression when you're like, I just want to like squeeze, you know, yeah. Uh, I, I I would guess that's like probably, yeah, that's probably like dopamine related. Um, and then we get our, our, um, auditory systems change. So we're more, we can hear cries, right? Like Mm. moms will say like, oh, I took a shower and I heard my baby crying and then I went out and they weren't crying. Yep. Sound asleep. Phantom cry because your brain is like looking for that and, and seeking and, you know, and, and interpreting sounds that way. So that is another big change. And then the empathy and emotional part, right? We're better at recognizing emotions and empathizing and understanding cues, right? And so, you know, when when we studies are mixed on whether our other cognitive abilities actually change, but mm-hmm. people certainly, and there are, there are some reports of it, but people certainly report like forgetfulness, you know, you go into a room, you have no idea why you're there. You can't mm-hmm. remember a word. You can't remember mm-hmm. someone's name, yeah. all this kind of stuff. My hypothesis on that is that you just your brain's energy is being like directed to, you know, the baby related yeah. stuff. And so like those areas of your brain are just not getting as much attention. But there is at least one study I know of that showed that mothers were the most effective, efficient people at work once they went back to work. Yes. More than, 
people who had women who had never had babies more than men with or without babies. So I like to also flip the script on that instead of being like, Oh, I don't know anything. I'm so dumb. I have mom brain or dad brain to like, I have superpowers. Yes. To respond to, to hear my baby, respond to my baby, get joy from my baby and you know, beyond, I'm going to be really good at lots of things, right? We learn to multitask. Yeah. We learn to, you know, we learn yeah. so many. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that point. And I also, I think I read a study also that where we become much better at strategic thinking because we've got to keep thinking about, you know, we're observing the baby, we're analysing, and then we're coming up with a kind of problem solution type thing. Mm. We're great at, at like team building and bringing a, a, a team together. And to your point around efficiency, <laughs> I think that comes from the fact that <laughs> in a day you understand that like a, I call it a mum second is worth a minute because you're like, I need to pounce on that because yeah. I could be called, my baby could be crying in like two minutes and whilst mm-hmm. I've got that time, I need to be able to use it really, really well. I'm not going to be like, yeah. you know, scrolling Instagram, which is nothing wrong with Instagram, like go yeah. for it. But at the yeah. same time, you're like, if I'm I'm here, I'm here. I'm getting this, this job done. I <laughs> When I've got five minutes between, you know, before I have to go pick up my daughter from school, I'm like, I am using that five minutes and I am writing those emails and I'm go, 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 and then I'm out the door. So I think yeah. I think we're much better at it. I, I think, yeah. Yeah, and then the other the thing best. we do is the list, right? Like you're always doing mental math of like <clears throat> how many supplies do I have? What size clothes are going on? What, you know, what are the plans? What are, you know, so you're really exercising oh, yeah. those like executive functions. Yeah. Yeah, all the time. It, but I think the take-home message that I think, you know, is not necessarily out there in a big way is being with your baby is developing your parent brain. And it's also bringing you a, a chance for you to develop your mental health. Because as your empathy is developing, that is going to, you know, help your own self-regulation mm-hmm. and, and even just self-awareness, self-regulation, all of like the the buckets of emotional intelligence get strengthened through parenting and it it's a chance to heal a lot of things, right? It's a chance to change a lot of things in us and take advantage of that neuroplastic time, both for us and for our babies. And it's a lot of it is just spending time together. And it's that part we talked about in the beginning and taking time for your own time too, right? To make sure yeah. that you, it's not intensive, right? It's yeah. not, we're not, so I'm not saying like, only hold your baby and stare into their eyes. <laughs> it just definitely do those things. Yeah. And make sure baby's having good care, you know, as best care otherwise um, when you're not there, but make sure that's happening and also make sure that you're taking care of yourself as best you can. Mm, yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna just finish off with our rapid fire and that's my first question, which is what's your top tip for mothers to be able to create that time and space to get that self-care what are what are the types of things that you're that you're telling your mothers that you work with yeah completely I think it's I like to help people do what they like like figure out what they love to do and so in the early days I I tell people to think of like make a list like what's something you can do for one minute five minutes ten minutes and an hour Mm -hmm. and just have a list of things and when you get 
those amounts of time or when you can, you know, have those amounts of time, do the, you know, do some of those things. So for some people it's drawing on their eyebrows. That makes yep. them happy. Some people it's having a cup of coffee. Some people it's doing a yoga class or going for a walk with a friend, art, journaling, right? There's so many things that make people happy and that can be done, you know, in different amounts of time. And I think to be realistic in the early days, you're likely to be getting more of those like one minute, one, five minute, five, yeah. ten minute things. And then over time, building in more and more and making sure that the person who's going to be taking care of your baby, that that's a reliable thing for you, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, if it's someone in your life, it's like, yeah, every Saturday from 11 to 12, you come over, right? Not just like, oh yeah, ask me anytime. It's like, I need to yeah. depend on you. Yeah. <laughs> that this is your hour um, of the week that you're going to be helping me, right? Yeah. So that, that, that's how it actually gets done, I think. I think that makes such a world of difference as well because it's almost like, having like a postpartum doula like that's what I say to our mamas you know we we like to come at the same time same day every week because then you have that mental note of like if you're having a really rough week it's okay Renee is going to be here at 10 o'clock on Thursday every week for the next 10 weeks and it's it is it's that it's okay I just like I can hold on but having, that's right, when when your doula is not there and you've finished up your sessions and what have you, but having that person who's reliably there consistently each week mm-hmm. so you can take time out for that self-care. I mean, the, the research shows how amazingly important that is and the reduction yeah. in postnatal depression and anxiety is just like you can't negate that. So, yeah, yeah. I love that, telling mamas to get that person in their life straight up um, to have that time. Mm-hmm. Second last question: What is your go-to resource, whether it be book, workshop for new mummers? Do you have like a favorite, Ooh. a favorite resource that you would obviously <laughs> apart from your own, <laughs> your own content? But was there something that helped you in your newborn days? Yeah. Tracy Castle's website is always helpful to me. Okay. Her evolutionary parenting blog. I love it. She goes really in depth in research for people who like that. And it's great, great resources to give to partners, members, that kind of stuff. But when I first was doing the transition between science and doula work, I found her stuff and I was like, thank goodness I'm not crazy. I'm not the only person who's putting, connecting the dots here. So, and she's got great courses too. She has like how to raise an orchid child. So highly sensitive children and she has a bunch of like really great things on offer yeah okay I love that and our last question which we always ask our guests what do you keep on your bedside table oh I mean I always have a glass of water Mm -hmm. that's always a struggle for me (laughs) so I worked with someone to help my sleep and she was like put water beside your bed so you every single morning you just drink that water and you've started your day you know, on a path okay. to be hydrated all day. So that makes a big difference. Love it. Love it. Yeah. There's a tip for everyone. I keep water on the, my bedside table, but I also think that that's the reason why I get up like maybe once or twice a night because I'm like, i got to pee. Yeah. <laughs> maybe this water thing's not working out for me. Yeah. <gasps> Greer, wow. <laughs> this has <laughs> been so amazing, so enlightening. You are just 
such a genuinely lovely person as well. So thank you so much. Oh, I thought I was going to like completely fangirl it today. So um, <laughs> only a few people have like, I've been like, Renee, keep your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to say thank you so much for imparting all of this amazing knowledge. I know it is going to be incredibly valuable for mamas out there just building that context around the normality of changes in the brain and what our expectations really should be of our children, particularly in those first, you know, few months and years of life. It has been such a wonderful chat. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Renee. It was really wonderful to speak with you. <laughs> All right, then we are signing off. Thank you so much. See ya. See ya. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.